0: Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 6 of the Judo Talk podcast. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. Um, So this podcast, I'm talking to Travis Stevens, um, and it's quite a long podcast. I wasn't sure whether to turn this into two or just keep it as it is and i thought well you know if you're busy you can just press pause there's so much good information in there that i couldn't really make up my mind where i should split it and stuff like that so it's just one big podcast today loads of really important information loads of really great stuff i learned so much from this interview uh, and i want to thank travis it it was really good Um, one thing i will say when we recorded this uh, we recorded it in the judo fanatic studio and there was actually quite a bit of work going on in the background at the beginning so there's a period at the start where there's some noises and I apologize for that and if I'm being really honest I have no idea how to get that off Um, I'm sort of making up this podcast and as I go along so uh, apologies for the sound quality at the beginning and I think it's only for sort of 20 minutes or so and then it sort of goes away and then it's then it gets into the podcast so apologies for that um but i'm sure you guys are gonna love it really judo focused lots of things that i didn't know it was a great conversation with travis so i'm gonna end it now and i'll speak to you on the other side hey guys and welcome to judo talk and today we've got a special guest today we've got travis stevens how are you say hello Tra- yeah i'm doing good. Good. good it's bright and early
1: 5 <laughs> 30 the morning
0: 5 yeah so when we were setting this up, I tried to make it so you could get started a little bit later in the day, but you was like, no, let's get started really early. What time do you normally start?
1: 6.15, uh, 6.30. If I'm in my office by seven, like touching my keyboard by seven, it's probably starting the day off pretty
0: bad. Really? Yeah. Are you a morning person or do you just like to get the day going?
1: No, there's just not enough. I really need the hours to like get a lot of like busy work done when I'm not being bothered. Because once like 8 a.m. rolls around, 9 a.m., like the world starts waking up and then emails just start flooding in, things like designers start getting back to you. And now you're almost like keeping up with everybody. So like your own daily stuff doesn't happen. I've got to get yeah. up early to make sure that happens.
0: So what what do you currently do now? What's your role?
1: Um, I do a lot of different things. Uh, My day-to-day job, like my nine-to-five is I'm the head marketer for Fuji Sports and Fuji Mats. So I do all of the product photography, product design, development, um, inventory management on our side. Everything from PPC advertisements to SEO to um, basic social media campaigns. Uh,
0: How did you get into that side of it?
1: when I was right after 2012, I, I kind of hit rock bottom. And I realized that after the Olympic games, if you don't have a medal, there's really nothing for you. Specifically, even if you get a medal in the States, it's not really that big of a deal, right? I think in Europe, like if you win an Olympic medal, it's a thing, right? People know it, people praise it. In the States, if you haven't won like three or four medals, you're kind of just like an everyday
0: Joe. Is that in all sports or just judo specific?
1: For us as a country.
0: Yeah. Because Uh, we have
1: people people like Michael Phelps winning eight gold medals. Like how does your one matter? (laughs) You know, same thing with all of our track stars, all of our swimmers. Like it tends to be a big thing. And... Judo doesn't do a very good job of allowing the viewers to tune in on a regular basis to really follow the storyline of the fighters and really gear up to who they are as people to get them behind the success that they've earned. I think a sport that probably does it the best is football, you know, because when they're playing in the Olympics, like they play over weeks in multiple different cities, multiple different venues. And it allows the people, if they miss a match, they can tune in, they get recaps, they get follow-ups, they get player history, they get stories, they get interviews. You know, all of the span of a few weeks, by the time the match is over, they know everything about that team.
0: Yeah, and do you mean proper football or... Yeah, I do. Football?
1: Not, not like you throw it with your hand. <laughs> you're in England, I <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. See, that's really weird for me, because in England... Um, it's a good thing if you win an Olympic medal and it's really significant, especially in judo because um, judo's quite a niche sport, but you're not necessarily looked after as you would think, you know, like people in the UK are funded for a UK sport, um, but it's still down to them to once they go after, once they finish their career to actually decide what they're gonna do next almost. So was that the catalyst for you to, to go into the, where you're working now?
1: Yeah, so I started a jiu-jitsu school right after 2012 because I wanted to have a backup. Um, Jiu-jitsu was always fun for me. It was, uh, you know, kind of like playing basketball, playing football, playing tennis, for everybody that does sports currently, like some people ride bikes. They just do other physical activities that take their mind off of the intense training of judo that they're doing while still maintaining you know, some physical output. And jiu-jitsu was kind of that for me. So I was like, well, rather than like going to different schools, I'll just start my own, bring people in. I like coaching and training people to train with me was a good way of learning. It also kept me inside the dojo so that right, off, right after judo, I could continue my training for teaching and help me to remember and improve my technique as time went on. And one of the guys that actually walked through the door is still a really good friend of mine. We're actually co-owners of Judo Fanatics and he owns BJJ Fanatics and we do a lot of other things together, but we traded jiu-jitsu lessons for business lessons. And so every day, at, I think it was still three times a week when he would come in, so after every jiu-jitsu session, we would go to a place called Kelly's Roast Beef because it was open until 3 a.m. And from 11 to 1, he would just teach me the Google ad interface and how to properly run ads and market a website. And so after about three weeks or so, I convinced um, Leah Hadashida and Jimmy to let me go into the warehouse and find all the old judo keys that they don't sell anymore. Because people return like pants, people return tops, or they just need pants, and the sizes get all mixed and matched. So I drove all the way down to the warehouse, which was a few states over. It was like a five hour drive. I loaded my car with all the extra kits. I drove them back, I cataloged them, I set up a website, I started running Google ads, all while training at Tokai. Once I cataloged everything, I got on a plane, went all the way to Tokai University in my spare time. I built a website, built a funnel, started running ads, Facebook campaigns and Google campaigns, and I was making $2,000 every four days just wow. running
0: through that person base. yeah and would you would you say when you're working with people now especially in judo would you always say to them you need another option as well always and would would you do you think you could do full time so as an elite athlete do you think you would recommend doing that as well as maybe university or setting up a business or
1: I'm, I'm on the, a weird fence line when it comes to university just because I was thrown out. So I'm, I'm a little different. I think some people um, are very book smart and very educated. And for them, you know, listening to a lecture or learning formulas or writing papers for them, it comes kind of natural. For me, it's like pulling teeth. Like I struggle with it. Like I have to actually want to learn what it is you're trying to teach me. And if I'm engaged, I can pick it up like that. It's why I picked up jujitsu Jitsu so fast. It's why I picked up marketing so fast it's because there was a need for me to learn it and there was a benefit. So I learned it. A lot of trades, um, even in today's market, the college degree is kind of a nice to have but not a necessity. Work experience is more valuable than the degree but some jobs do require it. So it really depends on what the athlete needs and making sure that their timelines are, can still be met for sport and also education. Some people just that curve of where everything lies just never meets up. I have some people that show up on the doorstep and they're like, I'm 22 years old. I'm in college. I want to go to medical school, but they're at a national level telling me they want to go to the games. And I'm like, we that those two things, they can't line up. Yeah, some people who are 16 who are already a few years into college because they were intelligent they're looking to graduate by the time of 2021 20, and they already are at that international stage where they're competing in winning medals well now school and sport for you it doesn't affect them for me it affected me I just couldn't focus I, my mind was always on judo and the sports side of it because I wasn't at a point in my life yet where the education was really that important But I still take classes today,
0: all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So before 2012, was you completely focused just on your training, making sure as an athlete you're treating yourself right and and going through that? That wasn't really a part of your psyche then?
1: No. Everything was geared towards making just enough to maintain what I had and then putting every other dollar I made back into the sport to help Mm. me improve.
0: And how was, what was a typical week like for you before, uh, say before London, when you were preparing for London, what was that like for you? What sort of intensity, um, what was your typical week looking like?
1: Um, every day I was lifting, uh, Monday through Sunday, didn't matter. Uh, we usually started our lifts around like 7am. Sometimes, uh, Big Jim, Jimmy's father, would have us in the dojo at 7 a.m. So my lifting would be pushed until like mid-afternoon, like that mid-morning time frame, like 9, 10 a.m. But typically speaking, I would be lifting from 7 to 8.30. And then we would be in the gym from 9 to 10.30. And then I'd have jiu-jitsu from 12 to 1.30. And then we would go back to the dojo from 6 to 7.30. And then from 7.30 to 9.00. I'd be doing jujitsu, and then from 10 to 11, I would be doing conditioning.
0: And how much work did you, at that stage in your career, you were fairly accomplished at that point, how much technical work were you doing daily? Was it just physical? The only
1: only real Randori sessions that we had were Mondays and Wednesdays, and at night. We would do an hour and a half Randori. That was it.
0: That's what, apart from traveling and going to camps and stuff.
1: Apart from the camps overseas, like after Paris, you know, after Germany, going to, you know, went to Spain one year, which I'll never do again. I'll never yeah. even take a team there. That was stupid. But you know, really? two How weeks come? in Japan. Um, it's timing in the calendar makes zero sense from a development standpoint. Uh, athletes that go there training in that type of heat tend to get burnt out. We could do a lot better by, you know, going somewhere where there's moderate temperatures. Like for those people who don't know, Spain is inside a concrete building with a metal roof in the middle of the summer where it's, what is like 35 degrees Celsius at the time, sometimes 40, it's hot. There's like, there's meters of puddles. That like, it's like looking at little kids running in the park, jumping after a rainstorm because people are slipping, people are too tired. You're not getting like that physical conditioning you're looking for. You're just miserable. Mm-hmm. Teams like sometimes show up to practice, sometimes don't. Like half, half the camp will be at the beach in the afternoon for the summertime because they're tired from the morning training. Well, it's like Austria is a better camp. Um, Paris is a better camp. Um, a lot of the B tournaments have better camps. The one in the Czech Republic mm-hmm. we went to before Rio was better than Spain. There's just better and options, I, that's all.
0: On the, I take it on those camps, because you're only doing round-dory a couple of times a week at home. When you go to those camps, you want volume and you want bodies.
1: Volume. It's all about volume. And sometimes a lot of the international players will come up to you and go, what is wrong with you? Like, Why are you doing so much? Because we would be doing 11 rounds a session not five, not six, every session, we would be doing 25, 30 rounds a day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then when we would go to Austria, we'd have a day off in 10
0: days. And that's mid camp, is that? Yeah, the mid camp. Yeah. Um, and I've always wondered this about uh, America, because you guys, is such a big country and so vast, and judo's obviously not a, a main sport. I always wondered what it was like as a national setup, how you guys managed to get you're around Dorian because in the UK that's where in the UK that's what they talk about you must get around Dorian we're quite sports. so say where I'm based you know you've most probably got 12 clubs within a 10 mile radius where you could go and do judo like that's how it's and we're not talking like just a, a sports like a, a little club like decent sized clubs so how do you guys in America do you meet up for national training or what's <laughs> they do anything. So, what is the setup in America for, for the national team? It's a total free for all. Oh, really?
2: Yep, it's a free for all. <laughs> That's why when you guys watch the states compete
1: internationally, like you don't know who you're gonna get. Like, no idea. Couldn't even tell yeah. you. Sometimes I look at the list from like the Grand Slams and the Grand Prix and I'm like, I don't even know that guy. Have no idea who that is. He just showed up one day decided he wanted to go overseas and compete internationally with no real prerequisites.
0: So who, who's in charge of America? Who's the he- is there a head coach of American judo or? Nope. No. So you've got obviously got Pedro's and you've got, is it Jimmy Morris, Jimmy? Jason judo Morris. Club? Jason Morris, sorry, yeah. Um, so is there any other judo clubs or? Uh, right now,
1: the national team has decided to train at Kitsusai, which is in Florida. Um, partly because it's open, um, but a lot of the national members uh, grew up out of there. Because the big thing in the States is wherever you grow up is typically where you stay. Most people okay. never pick up and leave. They'll just keep staying there, which is why our development really struggles. It's because the athletes never get passed on to better coaches. They just stay home and the athletes almost bring the coaches with them.
0: Right, okay. And in America at the moment, it, do each state have different rules on where they are with COVID and stuff like that? Yep. And that, at what stage are you guys at where you're based? Where, what's it like for you?
1: We just opened up into half capacity. Uh, huh. Masks are required to do any physical contact. And right now, uh, obviously some people follow the rules. Some people don't follow the rules. It's, it's hit or miss. But yeah. every state based on its rules usually has a general population that feels like that's the safer bet is to just follow the rules. So you have yeah. places like Texas, Florida, and certain other ones that are just, we don't even care anymore. We're done with COVID, no masks, no nothing, business as usual. Really? Yeah.
0: Wow. And um, so how, do you think your online site has saved... Um, save the judo where you are like save the business or do you think it's just through hard work of keeping everybody involved uh through zoom or whatever
1: yeah our actual usajudo.com platform has nothing to do with our actual local physical businesses they don't intermix one way or the other the usajudo.com platform is solely there for people that want to learn judo that's it that are struggling um today And really the the main reason for making it was uh, specifically in the States and a lot of places, athletes started a club and they realized they're not at a national or international level. So they don't go to higher level clubs for higher level coaching. So they need information or want information somewhere. You know, judo seems to hold everything very tight knit and to ourselves almost to like make sure we have value. So we started USAJudo.com to just start taking what we know and throwing it out there for the public, for whoever wants the knowledge. Doesn't really matter to us.
0: That's one of the biggest difference I found within Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and Judo is the, even in the UK, it seems like when we first went into lockdown and we were talking about going online, everybody was like, you can't do that. You can't do anything online. You, there's no way you can learn Judo online. But what's crazy about that statement what's cool
1: absolutely on. crazy it blows my mind that people make that statement about judo because mm. all of us myself included and i know you've done it because every judo player has done it we have all watched an ijf event where a star athlete <laughs> has done some technique and we're like you know what i'm gonna go home and try that yeah <laughs> we've all done yeah. it how many of us after watching wreckish philly throwing garvey I don't even know what tournament it was, but that weird, like, backwards somersault thing at that Grand Prix. <laughs> we all got to the club that night. We grabbed a guy's sleeve, cross-gripped, and tried to barrel roll backwards just to see what yeah. it felt like. Yeah. will do it. So, like, the idea that you can't learn judo online is just crazy to me. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. I, don't, I think the longer that judo holds out, the further behind it's going to be. It it needs, it needs that injection, doesn't it? I mean... Like I've only played around with the online stuff for, for a little while, but I just think the you problem, cannot be everyone go on, sorry The problem that we have in judo is
2: as coaches, as developers of the sport
1: um, we don't value the intellectual knowledge we only value the physical output and one of the things that's really holding us back as a sport is Our students are not students of the sport. And that's really where we struggle. You know, what we really need to start developing are people that can actually talk intelligently about the sport. Like, can you actually watch, I remember I did a video breakdown on my YouTube channel of, I think it was Moriyama's Shimada where I found two highlights, I put them together. And I thought it was just a normal clip that wasn't gonna do that well. But people, when they watch judo, they don't really see everything that's happening. They don't realize that Moriyama covers two meters on his first step, and he's 66 kilos. Like, anybody should go grab a tatami, to put somebody on the other end, and then try to jump two meters, and then do Uchiman, it's hard, yeah. right? There's all these like little nuances that these athletes are doing that people just don't know how to watch because we're not students of the game. It's almost like we watch judo through a fog, where we only see like, the actual big outcome. We only see the big Uchimata. We don't see the little intricacies of the sport and what the players are doing. And we really need yeah. to become students.
0: You know what really opened my eyes up on that? Because you're, I think you're 100% right with that. And I noticed it when I was watching a good few years ago, when I was watching football, and football made a transition in this country with their commentators. They used to just have people who were talking about the game. And then what they've done was they actually replaced them with footballers. Who actually played the game. And when they were talking, they weren't even looking at the but they were, they were talking about stuff like the formation of the back line. They were talking okay. about things that weren't, I was watching the ball and they were, they were looking at something completely different. And then I I started looking at that and started looking at Judo and was thinking, well, actually, yeah, you, when you're watching judo, you don't necessarily look at the throw, you're watching everything before that, before that point. And that made Got me it. think, well, actually, there's loads going on. And I'm sure people would really benefit from that. I
1: think I was doing a camp in Finland years ago, right after the 2016 games. And um, I can't remember what the question was, but it had something to do with uh, like match performance. And it had something to do with like fighting the Japanese and how to like, you know, offset like their technical abilities. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, I go jujut on the very edge of the mat. I mean, that's the easiest way to be a Japanese player. Yeah. Walk right to the edge of the mat and stand there. They'll follow you because they're conditioned to it. and then when they grab the gi you can do all the halfway judo you want and walk out of bounds that Japanese got to get a shido every time mm-hmm. and then he will get overly aggressive and then you can throw. But like just the like the tactic of like using like the boundaries of the, the mat area and how to use it to set up all of your judo is something that we never talk about. But it's something that we always develop as, you know, higher level judo players when we're on the edge of the mat. Like we use it, but it's not like anybody actually teaches it.
0: Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I was at, to be fair, I was actually really, really fortunate when I moved uh, to Cambly when I was 17. The coach there was Mark Earl. And um, so he's an Olympic coach and he's had lots of high level players but he was the first person to ever speak about using the area. And it was like, it never even came into my mind that that was a part of the, the game, the equipment. The, and, you know, he had sequences of pressure and he had yeah. answers, they'll either do this, they'll either do that, they'll either do that. And that really, that was the first time I ever really had an experience of judo so much bigger than what I thought it was, just trying to grab yeah. hold and throw in someone. Yeah, so it's amazing,
3: isn't it? Aspects of the sport that we just don't talk about because we're so focused on like the different ways of doing the shimada that we forget there are hundreds of other ways to set up the throw. And you can set up throws, you know, three moves ahead of time. I tell people all the time, I go, if I'm trying to set up my phone, say, no, I'll do three different attacks in three different ways just so on the fourth time when we get up and start the match. The sayo are already been set up because I conditioned my partner to move in the right direction so that I can throw them. Right. There's like video secrecy into the thing and like tactics that you have to be able to play that we don't talk about um, mm-hmm. as athletes and as coaches, which means that the people that aren't at our level that, you know, are watching this, they don't understand what they're looking at. They're like, oh, that was just exactly what I'm saying. But if they actually heard it in my head it was like, oh, this is perfect. Now he's leaning too much this way. Now I'm going to hit him with society. Right. Because I'm setting up those two moves. Later, just like you would do in chess, right? And yeah. we don't turn people into students of in the game for whatever reason.
0: I, I don't know. Well, I think it's just too simplified at times, isn't it? I, I know in this country there's a massive emphasis on randori, and I guess we are sport. Well, the thing is, we always say that there's never enough randori, but you can have randori every single night in this country. You could do Monday through to Sunday. You could find somewhere to practice.
1: Randori is useless, it's useless. Like it has its place, but like, it's totally useless. Like you need to be at a certain level of like intelligence in the sport. And I don't mean like, you know, your schooling, but like knowledge of like what's actually happening within the match and you know, how to improve. Every time you just tell an athlete to do Randori and they're just doing the same thing over and over again, you're either conditioning them for failure you're conditioning them not to think and process information, both of which are bad. And then mm. at the other end, like even if they are successful, they have no idea why, so they can't really recreate it when the other player comes up who does something slightly different. It's yeah. like we just hope for people to improve, instead of actually like gearing them for improvement.
0: It's funny you say that, actually, so a lot, especially with, when I work with children, like, a lot of the things that I like to work on is movement, Nagakami, you know, patterns of movement, patterns of grip and stuff. And I've definitely had conversations with coaches and they're like, well, why, why in Japan do they do two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, every single day of randori if it's not important? Because
1: they don't, <laughs> that's, that's a total lie. They forgot to tell you that the university players do. Yeah. University. Not their elementary school kids, not their middle school kids, and definitely not all of their high school kids. Most of their high school kids could do like competitive brand work, Guess where they go? To the university, because there's a place for that. Right? At high school, if you go to a high school practice, you'll be doing shikomis for two hours, mm-hmm. just developing your technique. Right? Like it, and people, people really struggle with cultural differences on what works and what doesn't work, right? When you're in England, right, you can't look at what Japan is doing and then replicate that in England because you don't have those resources. Yeah. You guys don't have, you know, a hundred different world champions and multiple Olympic medalists, all coaching at an elementary school level, right? Mm -hmm. That when they grow up, they're following like the world's best from when they're seven all the way up until college and then you know what at the end of the day not all of them become good judo players you can walk into tokai and find average judo players they're not all world beaters some of them are not all of them mm-hmm. so does their system it, really work i don't think so
0: well their model reminds me of like football in this country because there's such a massive volume of kids wanting to play football there's millions of kids in this country that play football mm-hmm. and then they just or the attrition rate as it goes up, it's just phenomenal, isn't it? Uh, yep. But the only advantage, say, football's got is everybody can find their level of their Olympics. They can play yep. at any level, which I think judo needs to do a lot better at. We're so, this is elite judo. This, unless you're doing elite competition, that's your only involvement with the sport. Whereas I think if you can find other ways of them being a student of the game or where, wherever it is, their involvement, judo will benefit. Yeah, and we
3: We don't have those different tiers for people. And, Mm. you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, like that's where Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has really succeeded. They've taken like the average weekend warrior Joe and made them a hero in their own like little level of what Jiu-Jitsu is to them.
2: Mm.
3: Right? Like it's a challenge Mm. because we're so geared towards high performance sports.
0: But also as well, I think from through coaching and especially coaching with kids, what I found is every person has their own reality. So you could go on to a session, you could go on there and you can see some of the kids that aren't training as hard. They might be talking, but you hear those group of kids when they're having a little chat on their own. It's completely different to what you've viewed, and they've all got a different view. And I think within judo, everybody wants their reality of involvement. And if you can find a way, whether you know whether a single club specializes in they was or they specialize in creating referees, or you know, just some, some way of them finding their level, their Olympics that they want to be involved with, yeah. would, would be great. Hundred percent. We just
3: we don't do it. Like we don't have avenues for. You know, 12-year-old kids, like, we don't really groom coaches in judo either. We just hope one day that after 20 years of doing judo, you've learned a few things and you can reiterate it, but definitely not necessarily intelligently,
2: Mm -hmm.
3: right? There's not really a program in any school that takes 12,
1: 13-year-old kids that aren't geared for the Olympics and finds another path for them. Right? Like, why don't we pull them off to the side, turn them into excellent coaches so that they actually learn and get, you know, praised on just studying the sport and being able to break it down? Because that has value.
0: Well, I suppose one of the problems I'm not, I don't obviously don't know the situation in America, but in this country, most people think judo should be done for free. Like, a, you turn up £3.50. So there's not a career option where I think that's Which is a whole, whole nother problem. Yeah. You know, judo needs to be professionalized and people need to learn that actually you can make a fairly good living. If you work hard at it and you study and you become good at what you're doing, You, there is an option to be a judo coach as a profession and as a sport that will help with your retention, your quality, your, everything else. Is that similar in America or...?
1: Yep. We don't have that many actually professionally run judo schools and there's definitely not that many professionally run judo schools that only teach judo. Hmm. I mean, we could probably count maybe 10 maybe in the entire country that are like actually turn a profit
0: yeah yeah and so when you're i just want to take it back a little bit to when you were an athlete did you did you have that same philosophy the whole way through or was it taught to you about you know, it's more about conditioning, your tactics, your... Or did you always want to do round dory and somebody helped you with that? Or
1: I always wanted to fight. That was what it was always oh. about for me. Uh, it was Jimmy who actually got me on the other side of the fence because people... I think people just don't know how to train. I think judo players are still training like it's the 1980s. We've never really evolved as a sport. I was doing a podcast with somebody and it dawned on me that like judo has been around for, for arguments like a hundred years, just for argument's sake. It's a nice round number. Not one thing has been developed in the lifetime of the sport to improve the teaching of the sport. Mm -hmm. Not one, like I can't go online right now anywhere in the world and buy a product that's going to help me coach kids better apart from grabbing another human being and throwing them to the floor, right? And it's, it's a challenge where like, we are not trying to improve the sport as a whole and make judo more accessible, more easier to digest for the everyday people. The learning curve for this sport is just a challenge. And when you're an athlete and you don't mind challenges, that's where Jimmy got me into the other aspects of the sport the drilling aspect the situational aspect of the sport because it's challenging right one of the drills that we do just arbitrarily at the club is you can take any grip you want so partner a can take anything right so maybe i'll start the sleeve and halfway down my partner's back and i'll hold the grip partner b can take anything he wants and i have a minute to just tee off and throw mm. just just for practice sake because a lot of athletes will find that when they do that drill, when they get their favorite grip, they actually can't score, right? But mm-hmm. if you wanted to score in a, a live-ranked session, I don't care what defense that guy's playing, you should be able to find a way to score with some technique from your grip, right? And, you know, after the Russians came to the club and a few other people, we actually found Tokai does that same drill a few years later. So, like, there are some improvements where countries are starting to learn how to develop and train athletes without the physicalness because when you do too much RANDORI, there's just too much risk for injury, for everything, everything else. else. Yeah. And then are you – people people go through the calendar year, and I was one of them, where I would start January in Sill. We would train and train and train, RANDORI, RANDORI, RANDORI. Then the summer would hit, boom, I'm injured right after the Continentals. And then all of a sudden you're laid off for eight weeks, two months. Then you work out for four weeks, you go to the world championships and you lose. And it's like there was no up and down in the schedule because all I wanted to do as an athlete was train, 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 compete, compete, compete. I broke myself. Went to the world's loss. Then we train, 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 train. And then by the time December hits, you're burnt out for the Grand Slam in Japan too. Right? So you can really see those pockets like right around like February, March where people do really well. And right around like September, October, when people do really well. And then the athletes that taper the one through five in the world, they do really well on the other ends, right? Because they're going up and down through the cycle because they've already reached their peak. They don't feel like they're chasing it anymore.
0: Yeah. That's one thing I was going to say, actually, what you notice, um, especially I noticed this a lot when I was competing at my level, the best players have, they don't have an advice because they've worked to get there. But what they're able to do is be really selective in the calendar because they know they're going to perform. So they can go, right, these are my two big events of the year. This is what I need to do. They know they're going to get selected. They But actually, for the ones that are on the cusp or trying to break into that next level, it's almost like you have to do everything because there's no season in judo. You don't want to miss out. You go from one thing to another thing to another thing. And actually, to break through is really hard. And that's why I wonder whether you see juniors break through a little bit quicker because they're they're doing their thing. They're obviously good enough and then they make a jump through onto that elite level.
1: Well, the one thing that's really helped them since like the 2010 era was judo starting to professionalize throughout Europe and the world at the junior and cadet level.
2: Mm.
1: So those athletes are actually seasoned. When (laughs) When I was coming through in 2008, those tournaments didn't really exist. Like junior world was like the highlight for people but now there's an entire tour for cadets and juniors. Worldwide, like these kids are traveling, they're getting used to that scene and being inside that process. So when they jump onto seniors, it's just another event for them. And they're younger, so they're recovering faster.
0: (laughs) That's how better isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, some of the people that jump onto that international scene at like 23, 24, 25, they're not going to recover like they may not be at that top five level but they can't train like the 20 anymore mm. they have to they have to start changing up their mindsets and what's important
0: and what was your mindset when when you were competing uh, when you were going into a, a contest was it was you thinking i'm just going to fight hard or you're going to use your brain or do was there a time where your emotion would take over your, your strategy how was it for you all
1: the way up until about, uh, I want to say like 20, 2010, maybe, it was, it was always about fighting. It was always like, I just want to fight as hard as I can for as long as I can. Win or lose, it didn't matter. And you hope that by pushing a tempo, by attacking, by doing things harder, that you know, you're going to win. And nine times out of ten, you lose. Right, Like my career going back to like 2008 wasn't anything special, but once I hit 2010 and I actually focused on like, what are the goals I need to do every match? And then I need to accomplish these goals. And then as I'm accomplishing these goals, I need to figure out how to win. That's when like, I really started seeing the success, right? Like when I was fighting Church's Billy at the Olympic Games, all we tried to do, hey, just last, just last until like three and a half, four minutes, and then we'll win it. Because when we watch tape of Church's Philly, you'll see that when his matches go really long, his judo changes. Like go find five of his clips that have gone the distance where he hasn't won. He's not up by a Wazari in the first like two minutes, right? He's actually tied. There's a minute left in the match. Like a lot of his matches with like Petrie and like a few other people. If you clip out the last minute, and you clip out, like, the first two minutes, and you watch them separately, they'll be two completely different judo plays. And the one in the last minute is beatable. The one in the first two minutes is really hard. Just because he almost goes... He, like, transitions into a panic, right? He feels like he's got to make it happen now. Like, he's not confident to, like, go into, like, overtime and go for another 10 minutes if he had to.
0: Yeah, that one... I, I never know with that one, because whenever... It's always, for me, whenever I watch Eastern Europeans, Russians, Kazakhstan, Georgians, for me, it's like they, they have a two minute session. Like their goal is two minutes. They wanna win the fight and be, and you can see their, their energy, their power is so explosive. And then it's almost like they can't maintain that level when it tails off. So then it is a different match. So I don't know whether it's the fact that they push themselves so hard or that's just their style of judo. And I always wondered whether moving the time from five minutes to four minutes would bring them back into play again, knowing that they didn't have as long to last at the end.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Um, I'm not exactly sure because I've never actually spent like a month there to like see what like an entire training calendar would look for them. Mm. Um, I think a lot of it is just for them, it's mental. I, I don't think it has anything to do with like their physical gas tank really. I think really? they're just so used to throwing people that when they can mentally in their own head, they're like panicking, like they're not really sure what to do, right? And they start like not making it up, but like just trying different things where, you know, we have the philosophy on our side of the fence, you know, working with Jimmy that, you know, If you're not losing, you're winning. Right? Like, we're in shape. Like, I don't care. I'll do the same thing for 20 minutes. And you can see that in the Bischoff match. Like, I don't care. Let's just keep going. Mm. Who's going to break first? I really wish that Bischoff match could have been an unlimited golden score.
0: Let's just see what happens. That was one of the biggest disappointments for me watching that fight, (sighs) seeing that end as it did, because when everybody says, oh, there needs to be less gripping, there needs to be uh, more just getting hold of a judo jacket and trying to fight, I think that's totally wrong because that match, to me, proved how good judo can be and how physical it can be. Because yeah. Ollie's an experienced fighter, but he's very efficient in his judo. He's very yeah. German. Like, he, he literally does judo to a T. You're going to have to really break me down if you want to beat me. And it was so good seeing you two fight, even when you got confrontational with each other at the beginning. Mm-hmm. That was great. How did you? What was your approach with Oli? Somebody who structurally you know, he's not going to back down. He will stand there toe to toe with you.
1: Really, it was it was trying to get him to make an overcommitment because, yeah. like you said, he's a very tactical player. As am I. I don't I don't overcommit too much, which. Really, is hard for me to say now because I lost at the Olympic Games from overcommitting. But that's not the point. Um, <laughs> that over the course of my career, like
2: I don't get thrown free home that often because I don't make that
1: overcommitment. I make players come to me, and and that's one thing Bischoff is really good at. He's a little shorter, he's stockier, he's very good at gripping, and he stays in his wheelhouse and never leaves it. And it was trying to get him to leave that wheelhouse that we were fighting for. And we just never got that opportunity.
0: And what was your, how were you thinking you were going to do that? What was your plan to draw him out? Because he, you had beaten the world, champ, uh, world number one earlier on that day, didn't you? You know, yep. you, were on four, you were fighting really well. Yep. What was your strategy for him? Like, how were you going to make that happen? Sorry.
1: Honestly, we were surprised he kept that tempo for as long as he did. Mm-hmm. But like typically when, when you need to get somebody to make that overcommitment, you need to be able to outgrip them so they feel like they're fighting out of stuff. That's one way of getting them to make an overcommitment. Um B, you can make them tired. That'll get them to make an overcommitment. Or you can make them feel like they're losing by doing Cheetos or a certain number of knockdowns before they get a tax where Maybe like if I've knocked him down twice, then maybe he'll feel like he has to get the next one in because he doesn't want to get that penalty and he'll make an overcommitment. So those are usually three ways of kind of getting a player to make an overcommitment where you can capitalize. And none of the three worked on his side or my side, mm. right? We Both of us kept the tempo. Both of us never broken our gripping strategy, strategy, and neither of us got tired.
0: Mm. And I think that was a really classic confrontational fight where you both were square. You were both pretty much square on until you were ready to to try and turn, and you could see that you you were like just trying to power each other over. It was that should have been the Olympic final. That should have been the Olympic final. Hmm. And how do you what were your thoughts when it went hand tight? What were you thinking at that point? Because your head was all bandaged up. You obviously you knew it was no longer down to you. You couldn't do anything else. Honestly, I thought
1: I won. I thought there was no way he wins this match. No way. And then, you know, the really crappy part was I didn't get one vote. How did I not (laughs) get one vote?
0: Yeah. Come on. You know what? I watched that. So I watched that again because obviously, when you said you'd do it, I thought I'll, I'll watch that fight again. And you can see when they done the hand tie, the, the middle guy went and he then was there was a shocked. delay. Yeah. <laughs> Bischoff was shot. <shocked>. Yeah. <laughs> but do it, it, I can't imagine what you felt like. I hate losing to my kids. Like, I hate losing like a game of chess or dominoes or anything. So, let alone in that scenario. When you walk off the mat and you know your day's not over, how hard is it for you then it to was it was done.
1: It was done. Yeah. There was no
0: there was no coming back from that. Not um, for
1: me. I just I just couldn't have oh, what's a good way of putting it. When you when you're getting ready for the Olympic Games and you're really ready to win it you have to truly believe like you are at your best and you're going to win it. The second that that like chink in the armor happens, it's not like a leak. like the floodgates come down and it just barrels down on you. And, and it wasn't even so much that I lost. It was how I lost that. I really, really struggled with because that match was the turning point for me where I wasn't mature enough mentally as an athlete to probably win the Olympics. I probably had the physical capabilities. Like I probably had the judo and I was probably in shape enough to do it, but I didn't have that mental stamina yet as an athlete. And that's where like I fell downhill was the mental side of it because I couldn't recover and actually get into the next match in a successful way to actually even fight for the bronze medal. And it's still a regret to this day. I just, it's such a hard thing to explain to people because I don't think anybody has ever worked for 80% of their entire life for this one thing and then not lost it, had it taken from you, right? Because when those hot ties happen, you didn't lose three people arbitrarily decided your fate and said you don't deserve it there's nothing on the scoreboard there's nothing on record apart from these four people at london four people that said you know what bischoff gets the olympic final for who knows what reason i had a ref come up to me like a week later and he was like, hey, I just want to let you know, like, no hard feelings. But the reason I voted for Bischoff was he did a really nice G R at the beginning of the match. And I felt like that was the closest thing. And I'm like, you judged the entire fight on one instance? Hmm. I was like, I don't know if that's fair. And I'm pretty sure the ruling stated back in 2012 that the golden score is judged all by itself.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say that. I, I'd have to get it checked, but I thought it was you couldn't go back to the match. The before. original match. Mm.
1: You, had to, you had to judge the flag based on what happened in Golden Square because it was a different match entirely. Mm. Right? Because clearly the first five minutes didn't decide anything. The next three minutes were going to be looked at individually all by itself. So oh for my. him to go back, and I'd have to check, but for him to go back to what happened in the first, like, minute and a half and pull that one instance, right? Well, I had close calls too. Maybe not as close as him, but like that's questionable. Yeah. You know, you know you've never, when you're a referee and when you're watching things from the outside, you don't have that pitter pattern in your chest of, oh, I'm about to get thrown. Right. Mm-hmm. We feel that as the judo players inside the match we're like, that was close. It may not look like it, but like that was close. I felt my foot slip on that one. Right? How many times have you been walking, have you been walking and shuffling around the mouth of the judo player and all of a sudden they randomly tapped your foot and it slipped? You didn't fall, but it slipped. And you're like, ooh. He almost threw me for ten. He almost did. But like the refs wouldn't know that. Yeah. We know that as each other, but they don't see that. So it's like, I don't know. It's one of the reasons why I like the rules the way they are. Just let them fight figure it out right? yeah. as long as you look proactive and you look like you're trying to win we'll just let this keep going don't even care
0: yeah I like it as long as it as long as it is still fighting you know yep. and that match for me definitely deserve to go on how how hard is it for Jimmy to judge like for him in that instance when you're walking off the mat does he just leave you alone or does he know he has to get you back in some sort of mindset
1: I was crying he was pissed off it took us a while to get into the back. he was still fucking pissed off. He was like, I'm not having any to this. He was yelling at the reporters. He was like, the IJF screwed on this sucks. He complained about the flag thing, you know, because 2012 had a lot of bias against it, right? If you go back to the 66 kilo day, look at what happened to Ebi Numa in the Korean, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody remembers, but Ebi Numa lost, if memory serves me right. And then what happened was the ref awarded it, both players left the tatami. They went back into the back room, pulled both players, put them back on the mat. They didn't even re-award it, right? Ebi Numa lost. Then they put the flags back out and they revote. And then Ebi Numa gets all the flags and wins and the Korean loses. That's what happened on the 66th day. And the rule of Judo states, once the athletes are off the mat, you can't go back.
0: Have they changed that now? Because that seems to happen an awful lot that they start to bring them back on.
1: No, that's because one athlete has stayed. Both athletes yeah. have to leave. That's, what, that's why some of the athletes like, stand there and protest, like, I'm not leaving. Because if I leave, mm. it's over for good. Right? But they can always bring one person back. Yeah. But here nor there. Like, there were some fishy things that were happening. And I think up until... What was it? Was it the 100 kilo day? I think it was the 100 kilo day was the first day in 2012 where all of the flag decisions were all the same color. Explain that one. Every hantai at 2012 up until the 100 kilo day, it might have been the 90 kilo day, but definitely from 81 all the way down, all the hantais, everybody voted the same color. How does that happen? Statistically, that's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. So was there somebody in all of their ears telling them where to vote to make sure that on camera at the Olympic Games that they all made sure it was unison and there was nothing in question? So was there really one guy that decided my fate, or was there four? Who
0: knows? Was that the first first year where they um, was that the first year where they actually had communication with the desk at the same point?
1: Yeah, and that was the yeah that was the first year where they were wearing the earpieces, but it was only the center ref. Yeah yeah
0: well I don't know maybe I'll have to get somebody on and actually speak to them put the question to them yeah I'll see what they say
1: I would I don't remember the timeline specifically but I would I would be curious
0: Mm. after after London how long did it take you to sort of get your head back in into a space where you think I can go for Rio about a
1: year about a year
2: yeah.
0: And is that where you, that's where you started putting your head into the work. Was that, did you find that a nice distraction as well? Yeah. The work side. Because,
1: you know, the one, the one problem people really have with their development, you know, when it solely relies on judo, it makes it really hard to feel good about yourself. Mm. Um, and what a lot of athletes struggle with, especially in that middle tier, right, is... They want to feel, everybody wants to feel good. But the hard part is when you're trying to learn and develop, you almost need to feel crappy because you're learning new techniques, which means you're going to be making mistakes, which means you're going to be getting yelled at by your coaches, which means all of your training partners are going to be throwing you because you're going to make all these mistakes. But you have to go through that struggle, which means if you're in a development stage in your judo, you're going to really struggle if you don't have something else in your life that's going to make you feel good. That could be family, family, That could be another hobby. It could be anything, right? But a lot of people, when they're younger, they put all their energy into Judo and they reach a certain level and they try to hold it and keep carrying it and it really stops their progression through the sport. For me, business was that for me where I can do a good job without the physical capabilities, right? Like, If I get beat up on practice, I can go online and I can do this other thing where I'll feel successful and I'll feel important. And I don't know what that is for everybody, but they should have something.
0: Yeah. There's actually quite a few studies around that as well, because we naturally as people want to self-identify and, you know, we are judo players. We identify as judo players and we're proud to be judo players and, It's the same thing as a judo player, you can identify as a winner. And especially in the formative years when players are developing, if they identify as a winner, it's really hard for them to to refocus and try new techniques because the second that they lose, they lose their identity. They lose that part of who they are. So it is a really fine balance with the coaches to be able to, to try and navigate them through those difficult times. And things like working, giving them another outlet, is really, really important within their development, not just elite level, but as kids as well.
1: Correct, And it's specifically as kids, a lot of coaches try to keep them on the mats even longer. And it's like, hey, at some point it's about retention, meaning he has to be able to recall the information that you're giving him. You can't just beat it into him for four hours, like sell it to him for five minutes, let him practice it for five minutes and see if he remembers it in an hour or in three hours. Don't just keep trying to force it down his throat because now he's just trying to muscle memory and he's not actually thinking and processing. You need his brain working, right? So when he's out there competing, he can recall certain matches. I had an athlete just two days ago, went all the way out to a competition, called me on the phone and he was like, hey, I lost this kid from Moldova. He was a lefty and he threw me with this thing. Sends me a clip. I see him two days later and I go, where's your left hand? Where's your right hand? And he was like, here and here. And I go, so which player was he? And he goes, he was a You know, I was like, go back and watch that video. He was right. He comes back an hour later, watched the video and he was like, I'm stupid. And I go, I know you are. I know you are. He can't tell you left from your right. Cause he got confused. Cause he's not thinking. He's still in that, like, I'm just trying to do everything as physically hard as I can. He's not processing the information in front of him, which means he can't make intelligent decisions. So all that Moldovan had to do to beat him was come out and standing like a left-handed judo player, put his left hand on the geek, changed his stance to righty, and my player still thinks he's a lefty. After almost being thrown as a righty, he got thrown three times on a right-sided throw. And he still thought that guy was a lefty because when he started the match, he thought, he saw it, he analyzed it, he shut his brain off, and then stopped thinking and processing information. And that's where people really struggle. They've really yeah. gotta learn how to recall the information.
0: That, that's down to, to us as coaches as well, isn't it? Like you talked about earlier, about building the knowledge around the sport. And that's, it's really funny, isn't it? Because judo is such a hard sport. <laughs> like it's so intricate and the rules yep. and the tactics and there's so many really, really good things about judo that you can go into. And to almost like say, oh, let's just be round-dory, you're, you're really selling the sport short, aren't
1: you? <laughs> 100%. like people just they're so focused on this one little like sliver of everything judo has to offer the public like just humanity as a whole that like we miss out on so much opportunity and growth that like the world of judo could be so much more competitive if we just opened up and actually started focusing on some of these other avenues for people.
0: That's one thing actually I like about... So I've done a little bit of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and one of the things I like about it is, although they they talk a lot about, oh, you must fight for this, you must fight for this, but actually behind it, there's so much that goes into the techniques and considering this is purely on the ground, we have this element as well to Judo. To we have the groundwork element where we can do stuff, but technically, like you look at some, something like Gracie University, there's that, like, there's so many videos, so many hundreds of videos for white belt, blue belt, you know, as it, purple, brown. And that's just groundwork. But they really, really focus on the technique development. And I, actually,
1: shot, for a, me <laughs> I shot a video, I shot a video. Um, it's eight hours long. I did it maybe a month ago for BJJ Fanatics because they came to me and they were like, hey, we want a video on just off balancing and gripping. It's eight hours long. It's mm-hmm. 300 techniques on just different ways of creating Kazushi from different grips and different positions that I personally use. And I'm not even like the foremost expert in the world of judo. Mm-hmm. But people forget that like, when was the last time you grabbed a kid and taught him how to move his wrist in certain ways to create different types of off balancing? Mm-hmm. We don't do that. We just expect people to figure it out. And it really limits the, it really has a limitation on the development of our players because we as coaches, we want to see our athletes throw people for baby palms, right? I want to see people actually understand the intellectual side of the sport and develop so they can be good players faster. The process may be slightly slower, but the ramp up speed once you get past those fundamentals will be so much bigger. And that was one of the reasons for doing USAJudo.com, where I think Jimmy's, like, Ochigari video is, like, 80-something techniques. Just the fundamental section is, like, 60 of them. Just practicing, like, the very basic essence of the throw in different ways you can do it and different footwork patterns to get in, just to let people practice. And it's – people are just – they're not really, like, pausing and thinking about what it is they're doing. If you treat judo like a foreign language, which is what you're doing, you're taking your body and you're telling somebody who's never done it before to do all of these actions, it is way too complicated. Way too complicated.
0: Especially from a development point where, where you think about kids that are going through maturation. And their risk of injury is so much higher, you know, they're uncoordinated, their limbs are growing. There's so many things that actually make judo so much harder for them that if you can teach them to learn to love the the complexity of the sport, you're possibly going to be able to keep them involved longer, but also fit and stronger when they need to up the volume, when they're actually at a a level and a capacity to, to push their body.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the drills that I have some of my cadets doing right now because I have a lefty and a righty in the room is they start collared. One person's inside, one person's the other side and they both start with the sleeve. Person who gets their elbow past their rib cage wins. Mm. And they just fight for that one position because at the end of the day when they get to become senior and international players they have to be able to win that position. If you want to beat the Japanese, if you want to beat the Koreans, if you want to beat anybody opposite side you have to be able to pull that hand in. And for them it's a challenge they're mentally in their own heads they're trying to think of different ways and get creative with how to accomplish this one goal forget the rest of judo and how to throw and how to do things like you have to be able to do this the three steps to tile the four steps to shimata, that can come later but if you can't win that sleeve battle then the rest of it doesn't matter
0: yeah i expect you can't throw what you can't grip can you yeah And it's that simple, isn't it, in judo? It's so easily forgotten.
1: Yep. And then people, what happens is they try to do throws at the exact wrong time, right? There's the right technique for the right job when you're doing judo. Every position is different. Every grip is different. If your partner is three inches taller versus three inches shorter, if he's 20 kilos heavier versus 20 kilos lighter, you use different techniques in different situations. Your foot could be too deep or too narrow based on your partner's height mm-hmm. and being able to understand and intellectually you know process that information and then get your body to know when and if to make those certain adjustments matter and that's where success lies is you don't want to get lucky and just happen to land in the right spot because when you get your next training partner your throw is not going to work anymore because you don't know how to make those adjustments because most people never talk about why certain things are done, they just do it. And then they expect everybody else to just do it. And then when they're not doing that, you actually never told them what adjustments to make because you just do it.
0: That's, that's the hard thing as well with, especially when kids are, are learning and developing because it's not just about you, the person doing it, it's how the other person interacts with what you're doing. Yep. <laughs> because it's not just about you could do one setup that works every single time against this one person but either the next person's a little bit higher level or lower level so their reactions are programmed completely different and it could be the same size same height same but they've done judo for an extra six months and they've got a little bit more experience and that's the horrible thing about judo isn't it
1: yep and that just goes back into you know really making them students of the sport not just focusing on the the physical aspects because they need to understand what those differences are so that as they get older they know they need to make adjustments to these hmm. right they need to know that hey walking to your left is bad against this player walking backwards against this type of player is bad pushing forward against this type of player is bad right it seems crazy but if the guy does drop say, saying maybe you shouldn't be walking forward
0: definitely. i don't know
1: definitely shouldn't be and we'll tell people that but we forget about the left, right and all the other throws, and we just let kids kind of you know, start doing Randori or adults start doing Randori too soon before they've been educated on how to be successful. And then a lot of people just get devastated, right? It's not fun being thrown to the floor.
0: And we, we
1: lose a lot of people because of it. Where Jiu Jitsu, right? When things happen, they've actually made success based on almost getting stuff, right? Like if, if I pass your guard, I'm winning. I didn't even do nothing, right? If I got points for knocking you down to the floor, I would feel successful. But in judo, we don't score that. It's all or nothing. If I almost pass your guard and you recover, I get points for that, right? I get advantages that can win me the match at the end if you don't score any points, right? So they've actually broken it down to like, these like, hey, you don't even have to be really good, like, not even successful at your throws. If you're just kind of good, I'll give you rewards for it. And they've really dumped it down to just the general pop- population where they can feel
0: successful. Could you I imagine didn't... winning? Didn't you think that... Sorry, go, go, on, go on, go on. No, no, go, go on. So, <laughs> could you
1: imagine winning the worlds and never throwing anybody for a poem or submitting them? Because that's the reality in jiu-jitsu. You never have to throw anybody and you never have to submit or pin them and you could win the worlds. You could could go all the way from a junior level player to winning the Olympic Games having never thrown anybody and submitting them. That's that's Brazilian jiu-jitsu because they score the halfway. As crazy as it sounds.
0: Yeah, I suppose on the flip side though, that's possibly why judo is a bit more exciting <laughs> because you have to, you have to throw, but on a development side for, for kids and learning and progressing and non-elite, do you think, would you introduce that at an elite level? Because in BJJ, you can be, you can be a world champion and a white belt. That doesn't happen in judo, does it? So do you think there there could be a development stage of judo and then the, the elite level or,
1: I don't necessarily think I would ever throw that halfway point into the sport ever. Cause I disagree with it completely. You either score, or you don't, there's no middle ground, yeah. but from an educational standpoint, what deems success and what doesn't right. And I tell all my players this, I don't care if you score or not. I care that you had a successful attack that knocked them down to the ground. That's all that matters to me because I understand as a coach and as an athlete, I can do everything right and still not throw you. Hmm. So I don't need my athletes to make those technical changes because in their heads, as we've left it up to them, when they don't score, they go, they go back to the drawing board in their head and they start beating themselves up like, what mistake am I making? What this mistake? What's this? How do I make this adjustment? Then they start making these changes and you're like, hey, your throw was fine. That guy just made a good move. He's allowed to do that. He can try to get out of your throat. There's nothing wrong with that. You know what? He did it. Good for him. He did a good job. But you know what? You got your attack off. You're safe. You weren't countered. And you were able to transition. That's a win. Right? And it's that mentality of like what is successful and what's not. I think for us as coaches and educators, we need to redefine what that is. That way they feel like they're doing a good job and they have that middle ground praise where we don't have to rewrite the, school, the rules of the sport to kind of be like a, a weird middle ground where like nobody's happy. Mm. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that... That's what I love about Judo and that's why I don't watch much Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at all because I get bored of that it looks to me like nothing's happening. They're just laying on top of each other, having a bit of a cuddle for a, for a period. Yep. And that's why I love watching Judo because there is, that, it, there is a clear performance, something happening. If there's nothing happening, we're going to speed you up. Yep. But I completely agree with the, the training aspect of setting, constraining, constraining their expectation, like limiting what they think is successful, telling them this is what you're working at, this is what you're working at, and you can lose and still be okay.
1: Yep. And we just you know, have like, to define that. Mm, as educators.
0: I suppose it, it would be no different to take in a group, you know, a group of athletes to say they're they're not elite, they're they're sort of moving through the ranks, you take them to elite session and say, right, your job is to only get thrown ten times today. You know, not even to throw, just you know, setting those bad those um, expectations from the start.
1: Yeah, when I would go to training camps, we would actually have like little competitions about like, hey, how many poems can we get today? And like, there was a minimum you had to hit, right? We never counted the losses, right? It's about opportunity and actually being able to score and throw free poem. That was all that mattered, right? I could get thrown a hundred times. As long as I threw the 10 that I needed to get, then I did a good job right? Because we're praising the success, not necessarily the failure. Because we understand as developing judo players, we are inherently taking extra risks that we don't need to take for the improvement of ourselves and our sport, right? If I just stay closed off and I'm fighting to make sure I never get thrown and score at the same time. Now we're into a, what am I really trying to do? Am I? my mindset and my, phys- my physical ability, they're split. I'm not 100% focused on one thing or the other. And, and it becomes a battle where a lot of times when you go to camps and you're standing on the sidelines and you're looking at people do stuff, nothing will happen. Neither player will score. Now, what did anybody get out of that except for kicked, punched in the face, scratched, and their heart-tracing? What judo do they actually learn? Mm. Right. I remember when I was in Paris and I was training with Toma, he threw me 15 times for a home, 15. I kept trying to throw him, couldn't do it, never did it. That whole training camp, never did it. Just kept throwing me. One round, he threw me 15 times. Just kept picking me up, kept going underneath me and I couldn't figure it out. But I'm trying to figure him out. Well, sure enough, we went to the UAE Grand Prix or Grand Slam, whatever it was at the time and we were fighting in the quarterfinals and all I did was look, I was standing in the chute and I go, I oh, know I'm gonna win. I'm just gonna do a drop sale. We're just gonna doing it. Because he spent all of Paris picking me up and throwing me. Mm-hmm. That he's been conditioned to go, well, you know what? I'm just gonna, every time he comes in, I'm just gonna pick him up and throw him because that's what I did all camp. I came into it with, I know exactly how he's gonna throw me. I'm gonna not do that thing and I'm gonna do these safe attacks over here and then I'm gonna figure out how I can win. Sure enough, 3 shidos later, I won. Mm. It's as simple as that. It's just judging and how we look at things differently as people and as you and what determines success. I didn't see the round with him as a failure. I actually thought it was kind of comical. I can't believe I couldn't throw that guy. I can't believe he threw me so many times.
0: Like I didn't even get one in. Were you laughing at the time? how did
1: I not get one in? Really? <laughs> Not one. It's got to be a joke. Come on, you gotta get one in, right? But it's that why. it's that relaxed it's that relaxed mindset where like I don't I'm not here for the outcome of this. I'm here to get enough knowledge so that I can go back and when it's time and when it matters, I can make educated decisions.
0: I suppose that you have to be quite a, a mature in your coaching approach, though, because. It's not easy to say that to kids at the beginning, is it? You know, oh, when, no. when you, you know, so yes. you're thinking like, they need those mini successes, they need those little things, and you say these are the rules of judo, this is how you win, this is how you lose. For them, it can be really, you know, binary, like yes or no. This is the outcome. So you have to have some sort of maturity in your approach and belief that you can you can uh, help kids with understanding that.
1: I had an athlete, uh, she was 15, really talented. It's a shame she doesn't do judo anymore. Um, when I was working with her, a lot of times it was just only giving her enough information to be successful. Uh, a lot of times when we think about judo and coaching kids and even coaching senior level players, is we try to get them from the balance to scoring with the balling. In one teaching session, I would only ever do it in increments that mattered. Right. So for starters, Hey, they're right-handed. You walk to your left. And the only thing I'm ever coaching her on is walking to her left. And when she walks to her left, even if she misses the throw, I praise her on walking to the left, right? She did a bad job, but she walked to her left. So I'm praising her and saying, she's doing great. Everything looks good. I don't care that the throw was bad. I care that I've gotten her to walk to her left. Now that she's conditioned to walk to her left, now we're stealing the sleeve and we're creating off balance by moving her behind. That's the next thing we're teaching, right? And by the time I get through the entire sequences, now she, without thinking about it, she's always walking to her left. She's always stealing the sleeve she's always creating off balance off the move. Now that she's accomplished this task and all by herself, meaning I don't have to like watch her do this anymore. Now we can start working on footwork patterns and actual throwing capabilities because without the actual movement in the start, the movement of the throw and the off balance and where the grips are, they don't matter. Because if you get to that end point without understanding the beginning, you're just lucky. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so getting kids to just do this simple thing makes it very simple for them, right? Because I don't care about the outcome of the throw. And I don't think they do either. I think they care more that the figurehead standing over them is praising them more so than they feel successful about the throw. We make it about the throw as coaches.
0: I suppose as well, you're, you're doing more than just that because you're, you're actually teaching the child how to be coached. You know, this is a direct instruction. This is what you yes. do, they follow. So actually you're building that level of they're starting to understand how to be coached, <laughs> but also you're building trust. That yep. they can trust because coaching is about trust and building relationships that's pretty much what it is but you've done by breaking it down like that instead of just saying right you lot go do round dory go throw each other you've gone through the process of saying right this is how you're going to learn this is how you're going to be coached they're going to build the trust and when you <clears> then <throat> go to competition you're going to have that element of a much successful much better relationship with your with your player
1: yep so when i tell my players to do something they do it out of trust, not out of fear of, like, I'm going to yell at them. I talk to them just like we're talking to now. Hey, eye contact, and here's what I need you to do. And they go try to do it. And a lot of times when they do that, they have success because I understand judo. I know where to put the hands. I know where to walk. I can see what they're trying to do, where they're trying to go, and I can help guide you through this match. And When we have that level of trust because we built it, from setting the very simple goals and praising the very simple goals, we've built it over time. And one of the things that a lot of coaches, you know, I don't want to say they're upset with me about, but they don't necessarily believe in the strategy is I never coach both Luke and Tori at the same time. It's always one or the other. We pick a common goal and we stick to it. And the easiest way to, describe what I'm talking about is pins. I'll teach somebody how to hold Kei Skatami and I won't show them how to get out, ever. Because once I've done that, now I've taught Tori how to hold him down and now I've taught Uke how to get out. So now we're at a crossroads. I take both players and I put them down onto the ground and I say, okay, Tori, you're gonna hold him, Uke, you're gonna get out. Somebody wins and somebody loses after the 20 seconds, right? One of the athletes no longer trust me. So what do we do? And that's why we, we just pick that one goal and we stick to it, even if they don't know how to get out. And a lot of times, I spend a lot of time just coaching Uke on proper positioning, proper balance, what they're working on, because when somebody's doing Uchikomis on them, they have to be proactive in understanding where Tori is trying to take them, where their balance needs to shift to, because once they understand where their balance needs to shift to, we can re- reverse engineer that and say, okay, well, if you know somebody's trying to throw you with this throw and you know where you're trying to move for off balance, let's try to go in the opposite direction just as slightly to make sure that he doesn't have the position he needs in order to get the attack off. Right? And we build that relationship where it's I'm intellectually explaining things so that they understand, I'm not just saying go do this.
0: Yeah. I- it's funny, he's talking about the, the uki role, something that I've been thinking about. Do you think actually teaching uki role is just as important? Because I know from when I started judo, it was taught this is how you perform the techniques, and it was very rarely ever taught this is what the other person does. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot and looking at a lot is actually where at what point is the Tori important and what point is the UK important for development? You know, and I'm not talking about being thrown or just practicing your breakfalls. I'm talking about learning about how things work within the sport. There's one
1: thing that Japan doesn't have and it's a bad Uke. <laughs> right? And it's one of the reasons why their technique is so good is because they have partners that, I hate to say it, but they're like professional Ukes. They know exactly what to do. They know exactly how to move and they know exactly where to put their body to make you feel good like you know what you're doing even if you don't right you look at some of their falls and it's like that looks pretty and a lot of it has to do with UK, not for
0: yeah i'll definitely if i'm running a session or i'm leading a camp or anything the first thing i'll do is i'll find the best person on the mat to, yep. to demonstrate on because it just doesn't work you can't get your points across and people say oh well that's not realistic well it It is because you need to get the right reactions. And in ramdorial competition, you'd only do those techniques with the right reaction. And you're just asking somebody who knows how to do those reactions, aren't
1: you? Yep. Because, again, it's that right tool for the right job, right? I'm showing you this technique because this is a very common reaction for this situation. And this is why it works. If you don't react in this way, we don't do this technique. And people think about it the other way, where, like, the technique needs to be an absolute and you know as well as I do that that's not true. There are many different setups and many different feints and many different grips that all have their place to deal with certain situations.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks. Right. Before we go, I'm conscious you've got a busy day ahead of you. I know you've only just, uh, yeah, you've got lots of work to do, I guess. Um, I just want you to talk a little bit about uh, your USA Judo. Where can people find it? Um, if they're interested, what I will do as well is I'll put a link uh, in this description and everybody on my mailing list, I'll send it out as well, just, for, just for, the, for their reference.
1: So Jimmy and I sat down and we've done this a few times and we've talked about building an educational platform for people to just learn judo, right? From the very essence of every move all the way up into like Olympic caliber techniques that they would need to know. Um, With that being said, every superstar has their own little differences. And I think that's what separates judo fanatics from USA judo.com is we focus specifically on the development side. If you're looking for, you know, really fancy technique and like different ways of getting things to work, then Judo Fanatics is probably where you need to be. And you need to find like a superstar, like a yard in Jerby that does Uchimata. Like you want to go figure out how she does it and how she sets it up and when she uses it. That's her instruction. You're not going to find that on our site. Our site is about taking you from step one all the way up until you can compete internationally with this technique and then you can start, once you get through it, you can start developing your own pattern and your own system because your foundation is so strong, you have the ability to do it. And what we're doing is we're breaking up every technique into its own individual course so that it starts from the very beginning with every technique where we just practice foot pattern, then we practice hand placement, then we practice foot and hand placement together then we practice all the different walking patterns. We haven't even touched a partner yet. We're just getting through the motion because a lot of times, you know as well as I do, you can just look at somebody and be like, that guy doesn't know judo. Just look at him. He like Just the way he moves his feet doesn't look right. And so what we do is we remove the partner and we focus just on those aspects of getting our bodies to move correctly in the right way. So when we introduce a partner, we're already doing the right steps. That way we don't have that friction of the good would get or the bad who get, preventing us from learning. Right? A lot of people when they're older, they really struggle with body positioning and getting into certain spaces because they feel like they can't. Without the partner there, we can get them into the right space very comfortably, and we can build that repetition over time so that they can actually understand that I can get here. Then when we introduce the partner, now there's one piece of the puzzle they're trying to fix, and it's dealing with the friction of the partner knowing where they need to be, right? Because they've done it without the partner for so long that once it's introduced, they know how to get there. And then we go into all the different aspects of Uchi Komi, moving Uchikomi, forwards, backwards, angles, sideways, left and right. Then we go into Nagi Komi and all the different angles, how to develop power using a crash pad, um, how to do every throw specifically with the crash pad. And then we get into very simple combinations where we use certain throws to set up the main technique. <laughs> so. We look at the how we learn the technique and then when it's actually applied and when it's used. So, every simple combination is broken up into two clips. First clip is Square Stance Always, where people can actually learn, like, hey, when you're drilling with your partner and you're doing with Chikomis, this is how you get good at this technique. Then we look at the actual Randori application of. When your partner is standing like this, this is how we're going to set up this technique. So this is the situation you're looking for, and this is how you're going to apply it. And then we go into different, once we get through all of that from our very traditional starting grip, then we look at modified grips and different grips and positions on the body where we can still accomplish the same technique. And then after that, we actually get into you know aggressive combinations and more advanced combinations where we start applying different things. So the way the system has been broken out into us is in an educational platform. So for the foundations, everything uses the same grip and everything is one action. It's Tori doing the technique. When we get into the intermediate section, we introduce one technique that actually opens up our partner into the original technique from the traditional grip. Once we get through all of that, then we can actually look at doing modified grips where we practice the same technique from different grips. When we get to the advanced section, what we do is we invert the actual setups and combinations. So we do the main technique first and then combinations out of the technique. For example, we do Tayatoshi into Ko Tayatoshi into Uchimata in the advanced section, right? Because the main throw we're throwing with is tayo, So it's what we do first. And then how do we score once they get out? And then when we get into the combination aspect of it, we actually introduce grip breaking into the techniques because grip breaking to us is a technique all by itself. So it adds a level of difficulty where our partner has to move, our grips have to change inside the movement, then we have to set up the technique. And then we go one step further where we actually force an angle change or a stance change into the technique and we go through these building blocks where we introduce a level of difficulty from the very start to the very beginning so that athletes can flow through that chart and really develop at a rate that's much faster than, hey, here's how you do Tai to Shimada. And then they just try to do it without understanding all the hand positionings and going through it.
0: It's amazing, isn't it? Like the amount of context we can create within how to get one silly little technique to work and yet we go, let's do (laughs) randori. Like it's so complicated, isn't it? Like all that stuff that we've just gone into, you've just gone into, sorry, in regarding just a course that you're developing to learn Judo, it's almost like you're wasting your time just focusing on randori because there's so much to do. There's so much to learn and so many things to enjoy about physically trying to get involved in, in it and making it work.
1: And we've all, for years, sat back and been like the only way to get a good workout in judo is to do randori and that's just not true Mm -hmm. right if I asked you to go to the gym and pick up 73 or 80 kilos for an hour and a half that would be a serious workout that you wouldn't do day in and day out yet we ask all of our players to do randori it's like it's a catch 22 where it doesn't make any sense in one aspect but it's what we all tell you everybody to do where we've actually stopped and said hey Let's actually like improve your judo. Let's actually enjoy the process of improving your judo so that when it comes time and you want to do randori, you actually see improvements. You have to have those dedicated times of improvement. And one of the problems in the US that we've seen with the world tour is the world tour exploded, right? And like you said earlier, it's a year round sport problem with that is when you're in countries like the US where we don't control the athlete schedules, athletes always feel like they're missing out because they have to chase the Olympic dream and all of the points. The problem when you're chasing all those points and when you're competing is the actual number of matches you get is minimal. You may get like 20 matches because you're not going five matches deep and winning gold medals. You're going like 1-0, and 0-1, 1-1, and 1-2, and like you're getting like a few matches in and they're not necessarily successful ones, right? You could fight 20 tournaments a year and only have 20 matches. Well, that's not good. When did you actually develop? Like when did you actually like stay home two months in one location and actually go through a developmental phase where, Hey, for the first three weeks, we're learning this technique. We're going to learn this sequence because it's going to help us eight months from now. And then we're going to condition that technique to our body. Then we're going to practice doing randori with that technique. And then we're going to make adjustments. And now we're going to go overseas to go to an international camp where we can use this set technique. But we have that development time in our judo where we're actually working on it. And it's a lot of people don't want to do it.
0: Yeah, and the kicker is really... The more you understand about judo, the more you uh, become proficient in the understanding of how you do techniques against certain stuff, the more you invest in that period, the less likely you are to get injured in the lot because your understanding of why it works and when it works and how it works and all this and your, your ability to actually do it is so much better. And, and you know, you know so much more. So your risk goes hey, down and it's you're going to be more, more successful. Like, Yeah, and just building that structure into your judo. You know, that simple little thing, that structure, stance, hands up, control the grip in, that will save you injuries all day long.
1: Yep. And at the end of the day, like, you're going to have more success throwing people because you'll pick the right throw for the right situation because you understand the why you're using this particular one for this particular situation. Mm. And I think a lot of people just don't understand that. They think Osoto is Osoto left on right, and that's not the case. There are many different ways to set it up from Kosovo Gari to Oji Gari, Koji like, I just... The list goes on and on. And each one has its place. Yeah. They're not as yeah. interchangeable as people think.
0: No, and um, once you understand... What I find is once you understand the principles of why and how they work, they're so much easier. Like, you don't have to... I don't think you have to learn the whole Gokyo from the start. What you need to do is understand structure, principles, applications. Yes. And then you can just pick and add as they go on. Because the techniques themselves are quite easy to learn. Like yeah. if you break the technique, they're fairly simple. If you can balance on one leg, you can do each matter. If you can So once you know, but if you know the principles and the how and the why, you're just connecting the dots from there, aren't you? You're just nice little lines and like say for example if you were to if somebody's to show you a brand new technique you could learn that technique but because you know so much about the principles you could then apply that in 20 different situations which is where the real knowledge you know that's where the gold comes from doesn't it
1: yep and that's why we really have to start becoming students of the sport where we educate ourselves on all these different like little nuances and applications so that when I'm learning something or I'm seeing somebody teach, I can see people teach pure gold, but they're teaching it in the wrong application. And I'm like, this looks retarded. What you're saying is right, where you're doing it from makes zero sense, right? And it's understanding those differences and being able to take that knowledge that you see and then being able to apply it somewhere else, right? So you can see athletes fail at techniques and go, oh, I understand where he was trying to go. But if they had done it in this situation instead of that situation, it would work. So having that ability to go back and forth and make things interchangeable is invaluable to people. We just have to figure out a way to get that across. And that was really the whole idea behind the platform is teaching people that structure and that flowchart so that they can start learning that process, right? Even me as an Olympic level athlete, when I learned new techniques, I practice on my own. I practice with the partner, I practice moving, I practice throwing. I go through that phase every time because it's how you get better quicker. Do I really want to spend two practices doing that first couple of stuff? No, but I also don't want to spend four weeks in the middle trying to do it live, (laughs) right? Like I don't want that slow pace either. So I give a little at the beginning so that I can have a quick ramp up at the end. Yeah.
0: Well, Travis, I really, really appreciate all your time. I know you had to get up extra early for this. Um, and I'll, as I said, I'll, uh, I'll post all the links to the USA Judo so people can have a look, but thanks for your time, mate. Of course, no problem. Cheers, bud. So did you manage to get through that one? <laughs> it was a long one. I, I did say it was gonna be a long one and I just really didn't know when to end it, um, to put it into two parts. And ultimately, as I said, I think, you can pause you can always go back to these sorts of things but i think regardless of the the sound quality at the beginning i think it was such a good podcast um to speak to him and there was a few real key takeaways for me with that and i really liked the idea of being a student of the game really understand it and possibly it's overlooked because you can do round Dorian judo and everybody loves that fun part i think there needs to be that injection of love into the learning side as well, which I really liked. I liked the, the breakdown and the intricacies of what he was talking about. Um, but also what resonated with me is there's lots of talk about what other countries do, lots of talk about what Japan does what, And it's just not applicable. Our cultures are so different. Our ideas are so different. We don't have the volume of those sorts of countries. So we've got to do us and and stick to that. And I, and I really enjoyed that part of it. It was a real holistic view. And also not just thinking about the judoka as judoka, they thinking about them as people and, you know, who they are and what else might they need to help them with life, not just judo. Um, so yeah so i i really enjoyed that and i will say i have put all the i put the links to the usa judo i've linked in the bio as well the Oli bischoff fight for anybody who's not seen that Uh, i'm not on any sort of commission base there stupidly i should have i should have got that actually down in writing that was on commission but yeah there's no link like that if you're interested go see it um it's really interesting stuff uh so thanks for that um, before I do go though, it's nice to see that some uh judo competitions are starting to be advertised. Um, the uh London International C2 London International they've started putting dates out, which is really really good. Fingers crossed that it's able to go ahead and judo's moving back in the right direction. Um also, it seems like some of the, the England pathway centres are able to do some doing it, which is good. Uh, hopefully, it's not long until all of us are back on the mat doing judo um, as well. So, yeah, thanks for everybody who keeps on messaging me about the podcast. It's really good to hear from you. Please don't be a stranger. Send me a message on social media. Please follow uh, the channels as well and any if you've got any guests that you'd like me to interview send me a message and don't forget thanks to everybody who's signed up to the mailing list now as well uh you can get onto that vince and that's just a weekly email that i send out with different information um, so thanks to everybody who's signed up on that but until next time thanks guys and i'll speak to you all soon oh actually before i go uh next week it is a special episode for me because i will be speaking to my coach luke preston and that's a really good interview no sound issues in that one it's a really good interview i'm sure you guys are going to love that one uh, so yeah so make sure you tune in next week where i speak to luke preston but until then see you all soon guys judo talk, talk, judo talk, talk, judo talk.